great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. And we'll jump straight in with the aftermath of this past weekend's local elections. Now, we'll break this down party by party. We'll focus on four parties, that being the DPP, the KMT, the TPP and the NPP. And beginning with the DPP, where, of course, President Tsai Ing-wen stepped down as party chair on Saturday to take responsibility for the DPP's poor showing in the elections. And on Wednesday, the DPP's Central Standing Committee elected election-winning Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Chi Mai as acting chairperson. Now, speaking to reporters after accepting the acting chairperson role, Chen said that he'll be working to ensure the DPP pays attention to criticisms and suggestions from members of the public. Now, the DPP will now be holding a chairperson by-election in January. The party has also established a review panel for the 2022 local elections and that panel is being headed by Taoyuan Mayor Zhang Wen-san, who has been asked to canvas public opinion and adjust the DPP's election strategies, or so he says. Anyway, DPP Legislative Caucus Whip Ker Jeng Min has been saying that the party should not assign blame on certain individuals for the election loss and now needs to focus on regrouping from its election defeat. Now, DPP lawmaker Xu Jie this week also let slip that there's likely to be a cabinet reshuffle in January. Reports have been saying that some of those expected to join the cabinet include Taoyuan Mayor Zhang Wen-san, Mayor Lin Yo Chung, former Shinzu City Mayor Lin Zhejian, and Pingdong County Magistrate Peng Men An. Now, Premier Su Jung Chung has not confirmed any of those reports or claims of a possible cabinet reshuffle, saying only that the government is carrying out a review of the results of the local elections and is ready to respond to public opinion. Now, according to today's China Times, Su Jung Chung will not be stepping down as Premier. The China Times also says that the Taoyuan Mayor Zhang Wen-san will become the DPP chairperson and Lin Jialong, who of course lost the election in New Taipei, will become the Presidential Office Secretary General. Now, of course, there's also talk of, or lack of talk of in some of the cases, of what will happen to some of the DPP's big losing candidates. Those being former Health Minister Chen Shih-jong, Tsai Chi-chung, who lost in Taichung, and the aforementioned Lin Jialong, who, as I said, lost in New Taipei. So, Brian, reshuffle... Yeah, it's not entirely surprising. It is one way of, quote-unquote, turning over New Leaf to show voters that the DPP recognizes the defeats and that does need to change accordingly. Of course, what not might uh, persuade voters is the fact that these are some of the same people that lost and the same names that one sees continually reshoveled. For example, Ling Jialong, who lost in New Taipei, although his chances of winning there were never very high. And so I think the question then is, will this really actually appease voters in that sense? I think Su Jinchang saying as premier doesn't really surprise because he and Tsai have made a pretty good combination so far. Uh, premier is often called on to take the blows for the president, and he's done a pretty good of that job of that while also managing to maintain popularity and get policy done. Uh, so that might not change until the end of Tsai's term. But then I think particularly there will be the question whether this will also be interpreted as a sign of weakness in the sense that the DPP is swapping out people as a way uh, after these election losses. And Brian, what about the chair, chairship, the chair seat, the chairperson? 
That's right. And so I think this is uh, interesting because it may affect the choice of next presidential candidate. Uh, Tsai's position is now weakened within the DPP in terms of her ability to influence who is the DPP's next presidential candidate because of her resignation. Uh, it was talked about, for example, that she preferred Zhe Wenzhan or uh, Chen Tianren, the former vice president, as the uh, possible presidential candidates for the DPP, more so than her current vice president, William Lai. But I think Lai's standing is strengthened by Tsai not being the chair at this point. But it also is possible that someone that is more in Tsai's camp will end up as the next chair of the DPP. And so that's also a question. Uh, Chen Mai, who is the acting chair of the DPP, has stated publicly that he does not intend to run for chair. So there is that. Well, he has a job, though, Brian. Yeah, that's right. And so what he has done so far is, for example, uh, nominating Enoch Wu as the DPP's legislative candidate for the by-election to fill the seat that was formerly occupied by now uh, inco- incoming Taipei Mayor Jiang Wan'an of the KMT. Uh, yeah, well, um, there's a whole lot to, that could be added here. Uh, as far as the DPP, um, in, when it came to this election, they came into it in a very bad position. Uh, in other words, all of their best candidates were about to be term-limited out, they, so they lost their best candidates. Um, they took the popular Shinju mayor, tried to run him in Taoyuan, and, uh, of course, he went down in a plagiarism scandal, which damaged the party really badly in the north. And so they had to run a slate of largely unknown candidates against and the KMT, because they'd, they'd done so well in 2018, they came in with 14 incumbents who were the the vast majority of whom had only served one term, so they could run again. They already had the name recognition, and the DPP had to run basically unnamed, you know, known, not known candidates uh, against those. I think, you know, above and beyond that, um, in spite of the president, actually, her approval ratings remaining just shy over 50%, which is phenomenal after six years, but that didn't really help the party at the local polls. And now I have a theory as far as local polls are going, and I'm going to be crunching the numbers over the next few weeks to see if I can really either firm this up or disprove myself. But there's seems to be, since the Sunflower Movement and post the 2014 local elections, there seems to be an emerging class of voters in Taiwan, which I'm terming the conservative safe bet voters. And this is a theory I I put forward just before the election, and that there are some voters out there uh, that are independent, and it's important to remember that everyone talk, you know, tends to focus on the percentage of the population that supports the DPP versus the KMT, but the largest percentage of the and the biggest voter block are people who don't identify with any party at all. And I think there's a large chunk of these people who, since the 20, uh, 2016 election, when they think about what is my safe bet as a vote, in local elections, I think that they swing to the KMT because they feel that, rightly or wrongly, but they they feel that historically that KMT governments are more competent at the local level. And this has been a historical perception that goes well, well back into the 90s. Then, when it comes to national elections, these conservative safe bet voters, they are concerned about China. And they see the DPP as the conservative safe bet vote because they will stand up to China.
And so they swip, they swap back and forth. And now, again, I'm going to be crunching the data to see if I can tease out whether or not this is a, an accurate theory or not. But it actually would explain a lot of voter behavior because we had a, in 2016 national elections, we had a landslide for the DPP. So a large chunk of voters switched over to them over, you know, over earlier elections. Then you had the 2018 local elections and a large chunk moved over and the KMT won the landslide again in 2020 in the national elections, a landslide for the DPP. And then in 2022, this was effectively a landslide for the KMT. Now, as far as the, the DPP and the chair race, now this is a particularly interesting one because historically the party chair is also the presumptive presidential nominee. And in the 2019 DPP presidential primary, for the which was held before the 2020 elections, the, that was a particularly brutal primary because you had William Lai who had previously promised Tsai Ing-wen when he was the premier that he wouldn't challenge her as uh, as president in the primary, and then he turned around and did. And he did so at the very, very last minute when President Tsai was overseas on a trip. And that left her almost zero time to campaign or fight back effectively. And her popularity was pretty much near her bottom with the public. And William Lai was very popular at the time. And so uh, it looked like he would win. Then inside the party, there was some maneuvering. I don't really know exactly what happened behind the scenes, but the party then moved the primary date back by a few days and then extended it fairly significantly and added a debate between uh, Lai and Tsai. And this also gave Tsai a decent amount of time to actually prepare, fight back, and campaign. And of course, she won at the end of the day. But it split the party, and it was a very sort of ugly situation. And this dynamic that, you know, it was very, very clear that Tsai and Lai, for a while there at least, absolutely loathed each other. And this dynamic may yet still play out in this upcoming party chair and presidential primary season. So I'm expecting there might be, there's going to be either a carefully brokered deal on who the next party chair is, or it's just going to turn into a bloody mess and a very uh, vicious uh, fight to determine who the chair is. Because again, as I mentioned, the chair often is and is assumed historically to be the presumptive presidential nominee. And then as we end in, you know, end up with the presidential primary, if there's going, if there's a primary and nobody, and somebody challenges lie, the bad blood left over from the 2019 primary could actually resurface. And then there's another fine, then there's another factor. And that is that the, that president, that under Tsai Ing-wen as party chair, what she's done over the years, because in the 2000s and during the Chen administration, the DPP factions were out in the open. They were brutal, bloody. They were fighting it out. It, 
you know, the newspapers were full of their, you know, betrayals and backstabbing and disunity in the DPP and it was very, very messy. And then when she came into power, what she did is she locked them in. And what I mean by that is she apportioned a, a roughly set percentage of party seats and nominations and elections by the faction. So New Tide, for example, would get 40%. The Zheng Guohui, which has a very long convoluted uh, name in English, but roughly it's the name rectification uh, group, you know, they would get, say, 20%. And then there's the Ocean Faction and um, the Sunny Bank Gang, and, and, you know, they all get these different fixed percentages of these seats and nominations. Now that she's no longer the party chair and can't determine these things, there may well yet be a, a resurgence of the of the factions. They started to come to life during the primaries for this election, uh, much more so than in the last few election cycles. And now I, I, I expect there's a very good chance that they're going to explode out into the open and there's going to be a lot of internal fighting in the DPP. So, Brian, Donovan was saying that all gloves are coming off there within the DPP for both the chairmanship, chairperson seat and in the run-up to 2024. Yeah, I think it's quite likely. Um, the issue there, then, is how strategic the DPP will be going into the next set of elections. I think what is quite interesting is that, for example, a crisis, if it's a perception of a crisis, might throw the party into disarray, but then they might also reorganize after that. And I think particularly this time around, there's actually not as much of a sense of crisis because there's been much comparison of this year's results to 2018. Uh, there are some factors or element uh, that are absent, such as the, for example, there's no Han wave. Uh, the DPP held on to traditional territories in southern Taiwan, whereas in 2018 there was shock because Han Goryu, uh, the KMT candidate, won Kaohsiung, traditionally a DPP stronghold. And there's that. Uh, but there's also no referendum this time around, for example. And so that was not a mobilizing issue that the KMT or DPP could really rather rally around. Uh, but then in that sense, that didn't prevent the, the result in 2020. Despite the blue wave that we saw in 2018, the DPP still managed to win 2020. And so I think people uh, in the DPP perhaps will be thinking, well, maybe we'll have a similar outcome in the future. Uh, 13 months from now, perhaps that will be the outcome and there's not this need to radically rethink things. Uh, but I think it's interesting then because I do think that the possibility of a power vacuum within the DPP is something that will be anticipated ahead of time. And so Tsai perhaps was aware that she would perhaps have to resign. And the question then is, what steps did she do to prepare for that? Uh, but I think that particularly when it comes to a lot of factions trying to pushing for power, trying to get their candidates in and so forth, I mean, sometimes it does lead to non-strategic thinking. And I think that might complicate the uh, race coming forward. And Brian, what about the former health minister Chen Shih-jong? What could he, what could the president side give him a position in the cabinet? Could he be pushed up in the party to become maybe more prominent heading into the 2024 ballot? It's a really good question. I mean, I think uh, it's one of those interesting things about Taiwanese politics in which you suddenly do have people running for office at high positions for parties that they were only until recently not a member of. Uh, I mean, obviously, Chen was a previous DPP member, and so him rejoining the party is not necessarily all that new. I think there was already a level of trust there. Uh, but then I think it raises questions about his future going forward. I mean, there was a discussion, for example, about the Ling Zhidian plagiarism scandal and how that affected the DPP in the sense that this affected the races in northern Taiwan. But I think also the Chen Shizhong, his, uh, his, the choice of him as a Taipei mayoral candidate also does set the tone for other races. And particularly when you're doing that in Taipei, the capital, which often does set the tone, then you're banking on the record of the side administration 
nation when it comes to fighting against COVID-19 and trying to win on that basis. Uh, that is main. That's Chen's main policy accomplishment, but that's also what his detractors attack him over. And so I think it's a really it's a real question then if the uh, Tsai administration really wants to continue to leverage on that, or if he is uh, trusted and people want to position him for other positions in office. Otherwise, it is possible then that the Tsai administration will continue to rely on a lot of the same faces that it keeps running for office, Ling Jialong or Tsai Qichang or whoever really. Um, and so I think there is that possibility as well. And Brian, looking at the KMT now, were they obviously the winners of the election, basically, yeah? And of course, the big name there was New Taipei Mayor Hou Yui, who was handsomely re-elected. And of course, as soon as he won, there was talk of like, he's now going to move against current party chair Eric Ju, and he could possibly be shuffling in for the 2024 presidential's ticket. Yeah, that's right. And so Hoyo has been talked about for a long time as a potential frontrunner for a presidential nomination for the KMT. But there's also long been rumors then that Eric Chu, the current KMT party chair, wants to make yet another run for president, uh, having previously sought the presidential nomination in 2020 and been the KMT's candidate in 2016. Uh, and so it is also possible then this will be a crowded race and one will have a fight between Ho and Chu as party chairs. Uh, despite the fact that Ho was Chu's deputy mayor when Chu was uh, the mayor of New Taipei, They've had bad relations for some time. I think also Lu Xiuyan in Taichung, uh, who also won handily, her star is also on the rise. And so, for example, the DPP will accuse her of want having presidential ambitions as well. It's a question if that's actually the case. Uh, I think that that would be interesting, though. I would make for a further crowded race in terms of all these hopefuls. And so it's also possible the KMT will see infighting as well. I think it's also interesting thinking about people such as Terry Goh, who was also has presidential ambitions, or, for example, the role of Koenja in potentially dividing the Tam Lu vote. And so I think this also complicates the picture for the KMT going into 2024. Yeah, now this is something that's very interesting. Is um, you know, I agree with everything Brian said, and to, to add to that, um, if you take a look at historically how the KMT has functioned, now if you were to just look at say opinion polls and logic, you would assume that Hoyoe would be the presumptive nominee to run for president. On the KMT side, I mean, he's by far the most popular politician in the country. Um, however, <laughs> the problem is is that the KMT internally, the party itself, doesn't trust Ho, um, and there, that has a lot to do with historically the elites that that kind of run the party, and these are the kind of people who are surrounding Mind Joe and, to, to a certain degree, uh, Eric Ju himself. And you'll notice that, you know, in the past, when you had people like Wang Jingping who wanted to run, who are, you know, they, they, their families have been in Taiwan for hundreds of years, they have tended to be blocked. And um, if you take a look at Hoyoi, he has committed basically two crimes. One is not his fault. He's a Jiayi boy. His, uh, again, his family's been here for a long time, and he grew up speaking Taiwanese, so he's, you know, th that's his background. And the party is very allergic uh, against another Li Denghui, is what their biggest worry is. And when it comes to uh, Hou Yui, he's got that knock against him. But here's the other thing. He has frequently bucked the party in the past and outright you know, ignored orders. Like, for example, they demanded that all KMT mayors have very elaborate flag-raising ceremonies. 
he refused to do so. When Hangul was running for president, it wasn't until the very end of the campaign that he showed up at any of his rallies. And but be up until that point, and well before that, even when Han was campaigning just down the street from him in Banqiao, where you know, um, you know, uh, Ho Yi's office was. He he said very very tartly and very pointedly, "I have a job to do." Meaning he had just been elected mayor only months earlier, and Hangul Yu had only just won the Kaohsiung mayorship a few months earlier. So it was a very very tart and brutal takedown of Han. Um, so there's there's been quite a history of Ho kind of clearly signaling he's his own person when it comes to the KMT. Um, so I think he has, inside the party, he has an uphill battle. Well, with the public, I think he's, he'd be fairly well embraced. But there's a second thing to, to keep an eye on. Well, almost all poll, or sorry, basically every poll, um, I'm not, not even, it's, it's unambiguous, has shown that Ho is the most popular politician in the country. There's been a set of polls taken by My Formosa, which look directly at who do you think would be most appropriate to be the next president, which is a very different question than, you know, whether or not they like the candidate. And in those ones, uh, Lai Qingde, he no longer uses William, by the way, uh, Lai Qingde, the vice president, is there on those polls the one most trusted to be the next president. And Ho Yui comes in a fair bit behind him uh, in those polls. And I think there the, the, the situation is that a lot of people, it's not so much that they, they, they don't, it's not that they dislike Ho Yui, it's that they don't trust his party. And I think that's where the problem comes in for Hoyoi. But ultimately, I think that the KMT, you'll see right now, inside the party, Eric Ju has shored up his position mightily. He came into the chair race really weak. He lost a series of elections. and But now, he's pulled off a pretty strong victory. So I think he's looking great inside the party, whereas Hoyo is looking great with the public. And that's going to be a very interesting internal battle if they both try and run for president. And what about Lu Xiaoyan in Taijong, Donovan? Well, I think she could. She's not as popular as Ho nationally, but she is pretty popular. And she is actually from a 49er family. So her family came to Taiwan in, you know, after the Chinese Civil War. And, but she's popular with Taiwanese and she's the mayor of Taichung. So she's not considered a northern elite, even though she's originally from Geelong. She might actually be an interesting compromise candidate between Ho Yui and Eric Chu. In other words, if things get really, really bloody between those two, there may be a movement to draft her as somebody who can kind of unite the tribes, as it were. She probably would be acceptable to the traditional elites within the party, but she's also uh, married into a Taiwanese factional 
political family and has been working with the red and black factions in Taichung as mayor. So she could appeal to that wing as well. Um, She plays nice with the Taiwanese factions, and she's ethnically, she comes out of the 49er traditional, um, you know, family set. So she may be the ultimate uh, compromise candidate. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to continue our local election aftermath, looking at what next for the political parties. Now, the Taiwan People's Party was competing at the local government election level for the first time since it was established in August of 2019, and the TPP fielded 90 candidates, including 48 in Taipei, New Taipei, Taoyuan, Taichung, Tainan and Kaohsiung. It won 14 city and county councillor seats, and of course, it also took the Shinzu city mayoral election there, when the much-under-fire candidate Anne Gao beat out both the DPP and the KMT. Now, the good showing, needless to say, has led the pundits to speculate the support for outgoing Taipei Mayor and Party Chair Kerwin Zhe will get a boost for his possible entry into the 2024 presidential race. And local media has been busy citing sources, saying that Kerr has already begun mapping out a national policy white paper and also planning to seek wider support nationwide, Brian. So the DPP, I mean, did, did that surprise you how well they did? Um, to some extent. I think what's interesting is that they were able to win the Xinjiang mayorship, and Huang Shanshan did so well in Taipei. Vivian Huang, that's to say. And so I think uh, this does strengthen the position of the party. The question, I think, going forward, though, is what Koenja's role will be. Uh, the third parties in Taiwan, as one has seen in the last decade, whether Pan Green or Pan Blue, have historically been troubled by their relation to the larger party in that camp, which is, of course, the DPP and KMT. And so the NPP eventually imploded over the fact that it couldn't figure out its relation to the DPP, how to distinguish itself or whether to critically support it or not. With Co running for president, that makes the odds of cooperating with the KMT a little less likely. Although, for example, Zhao Shaogang, the uh, Pan Blue pundit, did propose a cooperation agreement in some form, which was then rejected by the TPP, at least publicly. And so I think this is an interesting question going forward. Uh, I think also what's the question is what Koenja's role will be in the time until the next presidential election. Now he no longer will have a political office. He'll be campaigning. But I think the role of other voices within the party is actually strengthened by the showing that they did have. For example, An Gao or Vivian Huang, they potentially could become more critical of Ko in his leadership, uh, because I think the party does have a question regarding identity. Should it retain its current light blue identity, or does it try to seek other demographics? For example, pursuing deep blue votes. Uh, Ko Wenzhou provoked anxiety with comments suggesting that a bridge should be built between Jingmen and Xiamen. So perhaps he would swing towards that end. And I think then in terms of seeking political alliances, that also perhaps changes the kind of party identity of the TPP and other TPP politicians within it may not find that so strategic in terms of the brand they've built up as a party so far. And so I think that's something to look at going forward. Um, and I think that, that that's raises an interesting question then, because this party was built by Ko for the reason that he hoped to run for president. And he does need a local support network in order to do that, because he is not candidate with the resources of the DPP or the KMT. And so that's why this party exists. But the people that joined the party have their own interest in joining it, and they potentially may diverge from Ko in that respect. Yeah, the TPP winning in Shinju, I think, is one of two hurdles the party has to cross. Um, the party faces an ex- existential crisis, 
And one was that they needed to win at least one major race, I think, in this election. They failed in their goal. Their target was to uh, be able to form a TPP caucus in the cities and counties around the country. And they only managed to pass that threshold in Taipei, where they got four city councilors elected. Everywhere else, they got one or two or zero. And you need three to be able to form a caucus. So they have one caucus around the country, which really is not that great of a result. But Anne Gao winning the Shinju City was a big deal. That does give the party a, a fairly high vis- visibility city. The population of Shinju City isn't all that high, but it is it, it punches above its weight because it has a very, very high uh, tech component there and a very affluent uh, citizenship compared to many of the other cities around the, the island. But the, D, the TPP fundamentally, when they came in, you know, in the spring, they had what I refer to as three and a half stars in the party. Uh, and those being uh, Koenja himself and Gao, who won in Shinju City, and Taibiru, uh, their legislator. Those were three quite well-known politicians. And sort of by the half star, I would say, would be Vivian Huang or Huang Shanshan, who just lost in Taipei. Um, she wasn't actually in the party, but she acted very much like she is. So Vivian Huang went down in Taipei, that half star. Biru was uh, forced to resign over a plagiarism uh, of her university master's. And so that just leaves two stars, and that's Koenza and Ang Gao. Now, Ang Gao won in Shinju, so that that was very good news for the TPP. However, she is uh, under investigation by the Taipei Prosecutor's Office for skimming uh, legislative aid wages and uh, forcing them to donate part of their proceeds to the party and a series of allegations related to how she handled the employment of her legislative aides, but it gets worse. They, these allegations are also not just toward her, but the entire TPP caucus. Now, if these allegations, and I want to stress if, because they're allegations at this point only, but if, if they go to court, and if they're found guilty, that wipes out the entire TPP legislative caucus, and they're the third biggest party in the legislature and have five seats. That could spell, that would basically wipe out all of the TPP's best-known politicians and leave the party with one star, and that would be Coenza himself. And then suddenly, you're, you've got a party that's a one-man band, like the People's First Party and James Song. So... I think that, you know, how this all plays out, and Gao winning in Shinju means that the party still has at least one le- leading light outside of Cohen just still remaining. But these investigations could really just destroy the party if, if they turn out to be true and, the, and they go to court and lose. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, so what is interesting then is, for example, you do have similar scandals attacking uh, the TPP as with other parties. Uh, regarding Taipei for example, they did manage the plagiarism scandal by having her resign so fast. And so one avoided then the Ling Zhijian scenario. But with An Kao, who's the Xinju mayor, I mean, that is a scandal that would reverberate and affect her. I mean, then she is actually one of the powerful politicians of the party, but this could really drag down the party. And that proves quite difficult. Um, I think it's uh, interesting in that respect that these small parties have historically had issues then in the past decade with scandal. I mean, the NPP, for example, with regards to that Galo Young was also removed from office on corruption charges. Uh, and that, that, that issue and how to manage that, I think that's going to be a challenge for the TPP going forward. Um, in terms of its image publicly, then uh, what's interesting is that some candidates did quite well and some did not. Lai Xiangling, for example, in Taoren, despite being, I think, one of their better legislators, performed very badly. But then Huang Shanshan and An Gao did well in Xingzhu and Taipei. So I think it also does boil down to the individual uh, candidates that were running, their own histories, their own abilities as politicians and so forth, in terms of uh, campaigning and, and uh, that kind of thing. So I think that's a question for the TPP going forward then, particularly as the outlook of the party is uncertain. They did come into this with a strong position, but that doesn't mean a lasting position. Either. And talking of going forward, will the new power party, Brian, be going forward or is it simply crashed and burned? I think it's uh, interesting watching the continual infighting that occurs then, because now with the resignation of the party leadership to take responsibility for election defeats, one sees another power vacuum and infighting. And the question then is who will become the leadership of the party? Uh, they did not do as well as they hoped to. They do have momentum. They will stick around. But I think particularly they're, uh, they're, they've been facing identity issues for a long time. And a lot of the powerful politicians that are known on the national stage, are MPP politicians, have not been in the party for some time as well. So, Donovan, I mean, what happened to the new power party? Well, I, you know, as Brian noted there, they really have kind of an identity problem, and they've had an identity crisis and a series of scandals. They've had multiple waves of, you know, their most popular and well-known uh, politicians within the party, and they had quite a collection of, of people in the party who were, you know, heavy hitters. And they, you know, one after another, they, they quit the party. And so they're kind of, they don't really have any stars left. Their chair and, you know, the top team has just stepped down. Now, this does create an opportunity for the party. They're not dead. They did still win some uh, county and and city council seats around the island. Um, And they do have some support, uh, you know, among the public in pockets of the country. But they really need somebody with vision and somebody who can effectively communicate to the public to revive their fortunes. And that, under the previous chair, that just wasn't really happening. So if they can find somebody who can you know, build the visibility for the party, really get some excitement uh, back, you know, firing up the party, then maybe they have a hope. But who is that person? And the, the truth is, I have no idea. Okay. Um, they might be able to find somebody who could pull it off, but they've really lost a lot of their leading lights in, you know, people like Freddie Lim and Hong Tse-yong and, and uh, you know, the those folks who really were their founders of the party, they were very well known, they, they were effective communicators, they had solid support bases, and they kind of lost them all. And Huang Guoshang, in this last election, their former chair, 
who became famous during the Sunflower Movement, came out openly in this election and supported uh, Vivian Huang, uh, you know, who's the TPP-backed independent in Taipei, which further kind of muddied the waters on the identity of the party. So they're going to have to focus on finding somebody who is charismatic and com- communicates well and has a vision, and that's that's a tall order to live up to, but it's possible. And just to look at the numbers there, the New Power Party's number of seats in city and county council, the races this past Saturday, fell sharply from 16 before to 6, and they lost all of its five seats in Taipei. But Brian, now, looking at the other smaller parties, the Taiwan State Building Party, the Taiwan Solidarity Union, and the New Party... Yeah, I think uh, frankly I've been looking at the state building party because they're an example of a party that manages not to win seats very often, if at all, but has still stuck around. And I think particularly that's because of the outsized role they play in discourse, being much more pro-independence. The party also has explicitly the stance of not challenging the DPP, being more pro-independence than DPP so it can mainstreamize these positions. Uh, but then, even then, the party did not actually win too much, despite the fact that, for example, you would have Joe Wen-san, for example, of the DPP backing some candidates in Taurin. And so I think that's a challenge for the, the T, T, TSP as well, in terms of how to survive and maintain itself. I mean, I do think it will survive, but can it actually win office and affect policy at the natural level in that way? I think that's a, that's a question. And Donovan, what about the other smaller parties? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Brian's right about the Taiwan State Building Party. Um, They are very clear and unambiguous in their stances, and they show up in national opinion polls in support, and their support is pretty, their support is outsized among uh, younger voters. But they they do have a problem, and that is they they are very explicitly pro-independence, and what I think, you know, overseas would be considered on the, on the left-right divide, they would be considered left-wing. Therefore, things like legalizing marijuana. Um, but the problem is, is that if you are a popular, charismatic politician and you have ambitions, you are better off joining the DPP because they've got the resources to propel you forward. And so if you've got somebody who's, uh, you know, got those abilities and, you know, really wants to, is ambitious, they can join the pro-independence wing of the DPP and have a much better chance of succeeding. And that's a problem that also plagued the, you know, the TSU, the Taiwan Solidarity Union, uh, which is another party you mentioned. They, you know, they won, what, one or two seats, I think. Um, you know, they broke away from the KMT, ironically enough, years ago, um, in support of Li Donghui, and there were pro-independence ex-KMTers, which is a little bit weird. And there's also, in the origin story of the Taiwan State Building Party, there was some support from the TSU when that happened. Um, as far as the new party, well, though they only appeal to really deep, 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 deep blue or flat-out red constituencies, and they're helped by the, and all the small parties are helped by the fact that at at the city council level, the elections are still held in the pre-2005 way that national elections used to be held in Taiwan, which is multiple member districts, whereas nationally now the legislature is first past the post, and there's one uh, one legislator represents a district. At the city council level, it's still 
a city council, you have multiple uh, people representing a district. So that, that actually gives smaller parties a bit of a leg up. So the new party, I think the TSU, uh, the PFP, the People's First Party, I saw that they all won a very small handful of seats. I forget the exact number, but it's just like two, three, four, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and the uh, Taiwan State Building Party, I think they won, what, four, four or five, something like that, uh, all in the South. Um, so, you know, these parties are holding on, but it's very, very tough for them to break out and really challenge the two major parties. Yeah, I think that's the case. And so, uh, particularly, that's always an issue, I think, for third parties. I mean, you're still in this pan-blue versus pan-green framework. And so, I think often then, you have the emergence of parties that are more, let's say, extreme pro-independence or extreme pro-unification, or they are built around certain personalities, but do they have lasting power? I think oftentimes they do not. It's like they persist. I mean, they still have supporters, and you still do see odds for them, and they maybe can affect the discourse in that way, but their actual ability to win seats are relatively limited. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And have a great weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.